you found the space between art and science. I'm your host, Erica Ruby. Today's episode features French Paris-based art critic and curator Anique Bureau and curator and art historian Natalia Collegier in a discussion on cosmos and chaos. They speak in the context of their contributions to the February 2021 issue of Leonardo Journal on space art, a special publication in English and Russian for the SciFest 13 Media Art Festival. Later, Jan Betens reviews the new book Peanuts Minus Schultz by Ilan Manwach. Anique Bureau wrote It's a Beautiful Name for a Satellite, Paradoxical Art Object Somewhere Between Politics and Poetics. Natalia Kolodzai wrote Cosmic Inspirations and Explorations by Soviet Nonconformist Artists. This episode's featured discussion was produced for Laser St. Petersburg, the Leonardo Art Science Evening Rendezvous hosted by Sciland Media Art Lab. Anique Bureau begins. Thank you, uh, Erica. And uh, we have tried to structure our conversation with uh, with uh, Natalia. So my first question for Natalia is: We're working from cosmos to chaos in this uh, journey. Uh, so in the United States of America, the main metaphor to space exploration was the notion of frontier, the final frontier of Star Trek. Um, and in the, in the Soviet Union, cosmos and its notion of perfection and order uh, was the key concept. And, and it was very strongly related to communism as the goal for a, a future perfect, perfect society uh, somewhere else uh, outside the earth. So my question to, to Natalia is how has the non-conformist Soviet art that she's presented, that you are presenting, Natalia, in uh, and analyzing in your article emerged in this context and where does it situate itself? Thank you so much for your question. Uh, late 50s were turbulent but exciting times. It was a spiritual awakening uh, with the traces of utopian hope. It was denunciation of Stalin, return of political prisoners, and easing of aesthetic restraints. All of it created an environment for encouraging artistic creativity. Also, it is important to note that nonconformist artists uh, does not, do not share any particular platform or aesthetic purpose, but were united by friendship and the struggle for their rights as individuals. Many nonconformist artists were inspired to escape the confines of the Soviet system, not by confronting it directly, but by exploring the spiritual dimension within the self as they were living in the void. For some, formalism was the escape from the ideological reality of the everyday Soviet life. At the same time, it was the means of the protest against the pressure of the Soviet ideological system. The easing of aesthetic restraints in combination with the interest in the heritage of the Russian avant-garde and uh, cybernetics and exploration of space. Of course, uh, the uh, Sputnik in uh, 1957 and Yuri Gagarin, the first person to fly in space in 61. All of it 
contribute to flourishing an interest in geometrical abstraction and kinetic art in the Soviet nonconformist art circles. If for the Soviet government, launch of Sputnik meant emergence of the Soviet government of the uh, Soviet Union as a military superpower and promotion of the new political, military, technological and scientific development. And also it marked the US-Russia space race. Nonconformist artists took a different approach, approach of peaceful celebration and exploration of in an infinite possibility the cosmos may offer as well as the uh, infinity of the universe. Vyacheslav Klitschuk, an architect by training, he combined an interest in engineering, science, technology, outer space, and art in order to develop and propagate kinetic art. Klitschuk was always interested in process of form building Overcoming, overcoming the limits of materials and existence of form in space. For example, he created the idea of self-mounted, uh, he created the, uh, the uh, uh, outer space radio telescope in 67, as well as he entertained the idea of self-mounted city in the outer space. However, the artists were not welcomed in a, uh, in a top secret government project in the Soviet Union, as well as it would, it would forfeit any potential to travel outside of the Soviet Union, as well as the continuation of the artistic process. So many projects remained as models. Francisco Infante uh, is another artist who created several architectural projects entitled Architecture of Artificial Systems, Autonomy in Outer Space in 1971. For a very brief moment in his artistic career, he was considering the idea of art becoming a technology and as such is destined to be created in outer space as objects of architecture. But overall, the cosmos offered multiple limitless possibility for imagination and fantasy. It's deprived from earthly uh, time and biological clocks. So it may offer a new realm for creativity and inventions. Anik, and how do you see relationship between the artistic satellite and your notion of cosmos? Um, uh, actually, what you said about friendship connection and the fact that there is not one single um, aesthetics uh, can apply also to the artists that have uh, proposed project of artistic satellite. I want here to explain the difference I make between artistic satellite and um, satellite art. Uh, artistic satellite is not using satellite or satellite datas to create artworks but it's to create a satellite that is the artwork and vice versa to create an artwork that turns out to be a satellite orbiting the, the earth. Um, and uh, 
as an inaugural gesture. Of course, de facto Sputnik has expanded the public space that we inhabit and artistic satellite are public art, are art in public space. Um, so uh, I think it was pretty much like what you said, the, the, the human presence in space has been built in a context of tensions uh, between the two blocks, but simultaneously there was um, hope for a better future, for a peaceful uh, common space, for a place where peace could happen, for a new culture to emerge. And several of those uh, um, artistic satellites uh, express uh, this hope and maybe it was to counterbalance the the competition of the two blocks. And uh, for instance, just to name three, the hours orbiting uh, unification ring satellite, which is a project um, by Arthur Woods would have been this, uh, this uh, ring uh, in, in the night sky to celebrate millennium and to celebrate peace. I'm not going to develop all the projects just to mention a few. And I would like to say that none of them have been launched actually. Uh, but also with Kio, uh, Jean-Marc Philippe wanted to create a satellite collecting precious symbolic elements from the earth, including soil and the voice of the contemporary humans all over the world as a repository for the future uh, humans 50,000 years from now. Um, and so it was um, all those projects had some peaceful a global approach uniting humans really and it was to celebrate uh, peaceful events and and also it was to um, to 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 symbolize the fact that we are only one um on on, on this earth that uh, now that we heard that we had witnessed that the earth was small without borders unique and fragile and i think it was really um it's where the this idea of a cosmos uh, happens uh, there. And of course, they were facing uh, some difficulties. And this is a question that I would like to you to develop a little bit about uh, the nonconformist uh, Soviet artists. What, could you go more into the difficulties uh, that they encountered? and how they relate to the, what I call the official Soviet uh, yes. space voice, because it was really, there was a kind of, uh, you know, strong aesthetics in this uh, Soviet space voice. Thank you so much for your question. Uh, now we're coming from the ideas of cosmos to the cows. Uh, so, um, Manesh exhibition and the censorship renewal in 1962 and of course, replacement of Khrushchev by Lenin Brezhnev brought us to 1970s. And uh, when the artist was seeking to make the world aware of the Soviet uh, censorship and harassment, and of course the break uh, through exhibition in 1974, where uh, two artists um, I discussed in my essay, Vitaly Komar and Alexander Melamed participated in the exhibition. It's all kind of brought back some hope but it was dissolved completely by the new attack of the ideology by the government. And this renewed censorship and harassment also included, of course, uh, uh, deportation of Alexander Sajanitsyn and uh, imprisonment of physicist Alexander, uh, I mean, Andrei Sakharov. Andrei and also it precipitated 
the immigration of many artists, including Komar, Milamid, Sokov to the West. And this unexpected crackdown um, kind of led us to a stifling period of stagnation and feeling of eternity of the Soviet system. And for example, for artists like Belenok, who was born in Karagot, uh, not far from Chernobyl, and it was uh, this village was abandoned uh, after, after 1986 disaster. Uh, like for him, the main theme was like alienation of the individual confronted by these immeasurable forces. And he, Belenok, transcribes the Soviet reality uh, by evoking a sense of conflict and com complicated human interactions. Uh, he limits uh, his palette to black and white as uh, opposing forces of nature between like real and the uh, imagined world worlds. And of course, conservatism in politics and this feeling of eternity, but at the same time, understanding the absurdity of the system uh, this duplicity influenced uh, conceptual artists like Ilya Kabakov and his decision to treat his art as arena for working with the social, political, and historical Soviet discourse. While he was in Moscow in 1985, he created his installation, The Man Who Flew Into Space from His Apartment. And uh, it was where a fictional character, Lonely Dreamer, develops like an impossible project to fly alone in cosmic space. Kabakov used space travel and the idea of cosmos as realm for, for, for freedom, where a person could escape ideological confines by just uh, flying to space. Uh, Kabakov, uh, upon, upon his arrival to New York, Kabakov presented his installation at his first exhibition, uh, one, one, man, uh, one Man Soul in the Ronald Kellman Gallery in New York in 1988, and later showcased this installation in 2005 at the Russia exhibition at the Guggenheim, and later presented again uh, this uh, installation in the, in the show is Ilya and Emilia Kabakov, not everyone will be taken to the future, the Tate, Hermitage, and Tretikov Gallery. And this work now in collection in your hometown in uh, Center Pompidou. Yes. <laughs> and yes, and uh, so coming back to you, Essay, Nick, you write uh, that many projects from the 1980s include a light component which makes them visible from Earth. And then you continue by asking, do we have the right to put objects in other people's skies, even for peaceful and cultural purposes, without asking them first? And to whom does the sky belong? And can you please elaborate how, does, how, how do ethical questions and the position from the scientists, from the science community, from the astronomers change or evolved the nature of the works and the artistic process? Um, and it's where chaos really entering to play with, with light and uh, orbit pollution coming from satellite and actually we are not artistic satellites uh, currently. 
Uh, actually, the, the impact on the achievement or not uh, of the art project and their evolution uh, did not come from, from the opposition of uh, scientists to, to line pollution. Uh, I would say that money, raising the money to build the, the satellites and technological issues were more, uh, were more important in, in this, uh, in this uh, idea, in this um, evolution of, of um, the projects. But um, as I said, uh, uh, space, the cosmos, and especially the Earth orbit is a public space. And the, how you put art in a public space is never neutral, and it's often uh, related to some kind of power. Um, and the change in the night sky uh, has been uh, an, an um, an ethical question which was raised with the work of Jean-Marc Philippe and also of James uh, Pridgen, uh, who both wanted to put in the sky uh, satellites where, that were bright, that were visible from the earth with a lot of light. And uh, Jean-Marc Philippe wanted to create a ring of light, a ring uh, it would have been a, appeared as a ring around the earth. And it was uh, truly criticized by that, not only by astronomers, but by people in, in Africa and elsewhere that were saying, but um, who are you to put, to change my night sky? Who are you to put uh, this, uh, those objects into, into my sky, uh, and he addressed it, and he do, and he addressed he addressed it through through UNESCO also, uh, trying to write a proposal so that there would be some kind of committee uh, preventing people to put anything like they, you know anywhere uh, as they would uh, like. Needless to say that it didn't go that far. There is another issue beyond uh, light pollution, which is uh, the orbital debris pollution, which is getting more and more critical. And Richard Clark uh, created an artwork called Collision that, sh that showed uh, all the uh, debris uh, that are monitored uh, currently and that are really uh, clogging the, the Earth orbit. And, um, what I think is really interesting is nothing has really changed, unfortunately. Those people tried, I mean, uh, Richard Clark, um, Jean-Marc Philippe tried to address the issue of, okay, well, as an artist, what is my responsibility to, to do and uh, putting uh, a, a satellite into orbit that is visible from Earth and adding to the pollution. And today we can see that uh, when Trevor Pallian uh, decided to do to create is a non-functional satellite, which was basically a super brilliant balloon. It, it, it did not seem to care that much about both light pollution and um, orbit pollution. And uh, we're not going to say anything about Elon Musk, uh, who is launching thousands of satellites every, every month. And uh, with this, you know, um, line that you can see in the sky, this bright line uh, of, of these trains of, of satellites. And uh, we have uh, for sure entered um, chaos in, the, in, in, in this respect. Um, and if I have two minutes to, to, to add, the space world 
cosmic world is a very much man world. We're very much uh, into competition and ego projection. And I have to say that there are very, very, very few women that uh, did uh, artistic satellite project. And now we have Fabi Borges in, um, in Brazil, who is working with uh, CubeSat. And that the real uh, um, shift uh, was with the CubeSat. CubeSats are very small, 10 by 10 centimeter satellites. They are much easier to create, to produce, to launch. And uh, it's more on the DIY uh, approach. And today we can really juxtapose um, ethical, political, um, and decolonization uh, uh, questions and discourse uh, about space. And it is done through art and sometimes through those artistic uh, satellites. Anique Biro is an independent French Paris-based art critic and curator. She's the director of Leonardo Olatz and the organizer of the Leonardo Space Art and Science Workshops in Paris. Natalia Kolachai is a curator and art historian specializing in the art of Russia and Eastern Europe. She is executive director of the Kolachai Out Foundation and co-owner of the Kolachai Collection of Russian and Eastern European Art. You can read Anique Bureau and Natalia Kolachai's contributions to the special Leonardo issue on Chaos and Cosmos. This bilingual issue in Russian and English was produced with Xyland Media Art Lab and can be read through MIT Press Journals, Project Muse, and various institutional subscriptions. For Leonardo Reviews, here is Jan Betens. Penis minor shoots. Distributed labor as a compositional practice. A book by Ilan Manwash, published by the Paris-based avant-garde publisher GBE, aka Jean Boite Edition. As any other field of cultural production, comics is a medium that has been dramatically transformed by digital culture. Virtually all aspects of the making, publishing, marketing, distributing, and increasingly reading of comics have now become digital, with more and more new forms of comics that can be set digital born, and not just transferred to a digital format. Yet not always in the forms predicted in the 1990s when e-comics started to emerge. At the same time, however, there exists a strong resistance to digitalization in comics, mainly due to two reasons. First, there is the very conservative approach of digitalization in the traditional comics industry that merely considers digitalization a useful instrument of cost efficiency and maximization of profit, and missing all creative opportunities offered by the new digital environment confusing its consumers with online copies of originals and paper that simply don't work on screen. Newer e-comics have discovered that the best solution was to avoid complex layouts and to go for a kind of slideshow presentation one can scroll through. Second is the exceptional attachment of the graphic novel movement, which caters to a different, allegedly more sophisticated and definitely welfare audience to the magic of ink and paper 
that is the touch and feel and smell of works in print. In the graphic novel, classic publishing formats are not only preserved and cared for, they also remain commercially successful. In quite some cases, the graphic novel comes even close to the coffee table book circuit. And just like comics as well, they have now entered the gallery and museum circuit, where they may soon be competing with the all-time classics such as Superman and Tintin vintage material. Whatever one thinks of these changes, none of them radically changes the old-fashioned pillars of comics as art, such as, among others, the creative genius of the individual artist, the commercial value of original and copyrighted material, or the autonomy of the artistic sphere in regard to the publishing industry. Yet these are exactly the elements that have been shattered by the digital revolution, with its emphasis on mechanical copying and distribution, anonymous subcontracted labor by new masses of cottage industry workers, and ubiquity of technical operations such as web scrapping, tagging, archiving, crowdsourcing, or reviewing, which have proved vital to the business, but which are rarely seen as a substantial part of the creative dimension of the culture, cultural or creative industries. Penis Minor Schultz is a book published in the Uncreative Writing series, a collection of conceptual creative works that is works relying on a strong programmatic claim within a global framework of remix and appropriation. Like the other volumes of the series, it explores the new directions of book art, not after, but in light of and thanks to the digital turn. The author, comics artist and theoretician Ilan Manwesh, born 1980, is one of the most innovative and politically committed authors in the sphere of post-digital comics. A practice-based researcher, Manwash questions the fundamental issues of originality, innovation, ownership, participatory culture, or skilling and de-skilling that form an artistic as well as economic perspective of his project. Actually, both dimensions, the artistic and the economic, can never be distinguished in his work. The new type of conceptual comics, or cocos as he calls it, that he has launched, Manwash both creates and gathers comics that thematize these issues in the era of playbor, a portmanteau word that conflates play and labor and refers to the new forms of economic organization blurring the boundaries between labor and play, thus abolishing all kinds of distances in time and space. Labor represents post-industrial alienation. Everybody must work all the time and in all places, yet without ever seeing the result of her or his labor, and of course without receiving serious payment, work being seen as fun, even by some workers, at least in certain circumstances. Self-exploitation is looming large in the work-as-fun economy. A conceptual comics, Peanuts Minor Shoots, is a project based on the practice of the online labor market, 
AMT, or Amazon Mechanic Turk, is the best-known example of such an online service, where in exchange of a small fee, mainly precarious participants from all over the world accept to perform at home and with no further management control, small outsourced tasks for a minimal payment, not a salary or an hourly wage, but a per-task payment. Manwash's book is the result of a specific commission for an unauthorized remake of Schultz's Peanuts on such an online platform. Penis minus Schultz, the book, is the edited result of this commission and the initial list of the instruction is given at the end of the book on page 663. The 700 pages horizontal publication with new peanut strips, freely copied, transformed, invented or reinvented by micro-workers from all over the global village. That's what one finds in this publication. The materials submitted are amazing, to say the least. Some of them looking more real than the real stuff, others strangely divined, but it is impossible to know whether the distance with the original should be explained by the lack of a skill or, on the contrary, by a cunning parody. Yet after having read the nearly thousand strips in this beautifully printed book, our vision of Schultz's work is no longer the same. This is not peanuts as it is shaped by the hand of its maker. It is peanuts as it becomes in the hands of its readers who actually do with the Schultz comics or the merchandising has done with it in a different and definitely less interesting way. Peanuts minus Schultz does therefore not only disclose what actually happens in the world of micro-work, if not the world out there, a strange mix of plagiarism and originality, all produced in huge quantities and in almost no time. It took four months, for instance, during a residency to collect and edit all the submissions. The book also contains a powerful criticism of what Schultz himself and the company or estate behind his work have always categorically denied, namely the progressive incorporation of a work of art, Peanuts the Comics, in an economic superstructure, Peanuts the Merchandising, that eventually has taken over power. In the Schultz universe, the comic work has been downgraded to a tiny detail of the larger merchandising empire. And the shift is clearly a creative disaster. It kills all kind of freedom and innovation. The illegal or unauthorized copies and variations showcase on almost every page. These objectives and outcomes are light years away from what is generally discussed in the context of digital comics. It is the tremendous merit of Elan Manwash to help focus on the real stakes of the digital turn in comics and art in general, which are not technological, but cultural, that is artistic, social, economic and political. Jan Betens is a professor of cultural studies at the University of Leuven.
Leonardo Reviews has provided scholarly reviews of books, exhibitions, videos, websites, and conferences since 1968. Reviews are published monthly at leonardo.info reviews. Between Art and Science is a production of Leonardo, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences, and Technology. Our editorial director is Erica Ruby. This episode's featured discussion was produced for Laser St. Petersburg, the Leonardo Art Science Evening Rendezvous hosted by Silent Media Art Lab. Leonardo Reviews is led by Editor-in-Chief Michael Punt, Production Assistance by Tina Zonaka. Our theme music was composed by Wyatt Koish. Find out more about Leonardo, our publications, and our programs at www.leonardo.info.